Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume Podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Emmanuel Govio. Emmanuel, I'm so happy uh, to have you here and see your beautiful smiling face, but also your beautiful colour-coordinated bookcase behind you. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can you um, introduce yourself, please? Okay, well, so I am Emmanuel Gobillot. Um, I am French, hence the name, um, and I live in the UK. I'm an author, speaker and consultant specializing in leadership and collaboration. Uh, and, and I am a father of two living in London. And um, I'm I don't know, should I say my age? Do people care about people's <laughs> ages? I don't know. I'm in my 50s now. Gosh. So it was my wife's birthday yesterday, so we're quite into the age thing right now. It's just the realisation that we're getting old. Excellent. And did you have a celebration yesterday? Uh, we kind of did, but we had a celebration uh, beforehand as well. So, so we had a, a quiet day at home yesterday. Nice. And your wife's studying wine isn't she so did she, you have some fine wine she is no we didn't we didn't have anything fine because she's doing a lot of tasting of a lot of different things so so we she she needs to taste i thought we were on a good thing when she decided to to study wine and i'm from burgundy so it matters to me but i, I thought we were onto a good thing until i realized that actually she's saying you know we need to taste the entire range so we taste a lot of very bad stuff as well as <laughs> great stuff. And yesterday was a range. So so we had some nice, nice tastings, but also some pretty ropey ones. <laughs> and are you a, this can sound really inappropriate, do you spit or swallow? Um, now that she is doing her, uh, her tasting, does that mean that when you're tasting them, you spit them out? Or are yes, you more, you I'm going to drink uh, it, otherwise uh, you, you'd be really you, drunk? You have, because otherwise you'd be in trouble. So so no, there's quite a lot of spitting, which is kind of gross <laughs> if you think about it. But um, yes, yeah, so, um, no, it's quite... Uh, it, you know, so I'm from Burgundy. I know nothing about wines. I mean, I, I was, you know, born in in a place where vineyards are, but I, I can't say I know much about wine. And Catherine, who by right, being British, should know absolutely nothing about wine, knows so much more than I do. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, even Bordeaux is a foreign wine. So, you know, I'm fairly, my taste is fairly <laughs> set on Burgundy. But, uh, but so she's expanded my horizons. There you go. Can I ask, when you go to a restaurant, do people assume that you are going to order the wine because you're the man? Uh, yes, more, less so now, I have to say. They still do, though, but but it's quite... Um, I find that it depends on who who's asking. So so Catherine tends to kind of always sit up when the wine list approaches and, and starts to look. I mean, we always, you know, once she's decided on the wine, then the the tasting is given to her. Um, but but yes, I mean, the, the, the default position does still tend to be in many places, one wine list instead of two and 
given to the man instead of the woman. That is very true. Mm. It's very true. But less so. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's about the attitude as well to the whole thing, because she she tends to be much more proactive in, you know, kind of putting a hand out. And the <laughs> Grab it off the them. And grabbing it and whatever. <laughs> God, making it sound like she's desperate for a drink. But, yeah. It just struck me then. I was curious because I've had that experience where the, you know, the assumption is that it's the man who's going to make those important wine decisions. But I tell you what, though, the the world of wine, and I think that's true of the world in general, when people, so when you talk to a sommelier and they realize that you have a shared interest, the conversation is so different. So, so you know, we've had some incredible conversations with somebody as a result of Catherine actually knowing what she's talking about. And and you can see the passion of the people you're speaking with. And it just it just becomes a completely different experience. And quite a lot of the time we get some free samples as well. <laughs> get really excited about something they've just discovered and they go, oh, you'll understand, you know, so... I remember once ever I was with out with my parents when I used to live in Harrow and we were up in Harrow on the hill right next to the Mm. school and um, really nice restaurant and the wine was corked and this was years and years ago and me and my dad sat there for ages going I think it's corked I think it's corked like it took us ages to get the courage to say I think the wine's corked I know I know and you feel bad um, but then because you think, well, what are they going to do with it? And then, you know, well, I'm not a professional, so so maybe they know something I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah. very true. The cork, yeah. the cork thing is, it's rare, but it's embarrassing. Yeah, and we had that very British thing of not wanting to make a fuss. That's but right. We were, yeah. we were paying a lot for the meal and the wine was expensive. And in the end, we both like egged each other on. Um, on. And it's, you know, it's like, you say, no, you say. <laughs> Terrible, really. See, I don't have that problem. Cats cats. That's the nice thing. Right. So you mentioned um, growing up in Burgundy, you grew up in Dijon, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, Which is beautiful, beautiful place. Um, So let's go back to then to young Mm -hmm. Emmanuel. Um, (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your growing up. And, you know, you told me that you wrote a book at a very young age. So tell us a bit about that. No, I did. You know, I, I it's it's. Well, I should be clear. I wrote a title. I'm not actually sure how far I went into writing the book. I can't. I, I genuinely cannot recall. And I was thinking I should ask my mum if she still has, because my mum kept all sorts of things. And I should ask her if she still has it, because it would be hilarious. Um, so I, I grew up. Um, so my dad was a train driver. So I grew up on a not a council estate, um, but a railway estate. So, the, so, so similar, but owned by the railway. Uh, so, if you, there's a lot of things like this in France at the time, uh, back in the in the late sixties, early seventies. Um, social housing tended to go with your profession. So, my my mm-hmm. sister became a teacher, and I had a a flat because she was a teacher owned by the education. Um, so, we grew up in a in a big um, estate, um, and. Yeah, so my dad was a train driver. My mum was a cleaner. Uh, uh, and I had a really happy childhood, uh, I, I guess, uh, for most of my youth. My parents uh, split up when we were fairly young, so that that went a bit wrong. But uh, but no, so, so I came from a family where, um, well, two things mattered, really. I mean, my grandma, and I, I, I was writing about this in, in my last book, which is why it's still fresh in my mind, but my grandma used to say, 
in our families, we don't have the best jobs, but that doesn't mean we can't be the best at the jobs we have. So there was a, an ethic in my family about, you know, being good at what you do and taking pride in what you do. Um, but there was also uh, going with that, uh, and especially with my mother, something about, I guess you'd call it the American dream in France, but there was something about bettering yourself. So, so mom did night classes. She eventually became a civil servant. She became a tax inspector, you know, and she was a cleaner with no education or, or hardly any, the, the, the bare minimum. My dad started work age 14 as an apprentice in the railway uh, and ended up being a test driver for the French high-speed rail. So there was something about um, learning making yourself better uh, and and i think that that kind of really played a big part um in in my education the other thing uh which was uh i was a fat kid okay so i was i was um uh, and, and at that stage you're supposed to say my god what happened in that amazing change <laughs> in, in you? But, but but i was i was always a chubby kid um, and I realized early on that actually my way of impacting the world was about being funny, um, being witty, about being kind, about being a friend, about bringing people together. So there was a big thing for me about um, impacting and influencing people. So if you put all of this thing together... There was a book that children read in France at that time. I don't know if they still do uh, because I left France a while back, but it, it was called um, Memoirs of a Donkey, Memoirs of an Ass. And it's it's by Countess um, de Ségur, uh, written in the 19th, I guess, 19th century. But it's a really, really popular book. Uh, and it's about this donkey or whatever. Now, if you mess messed around at school I don't know if that's true of British school but but in in French school you were called an ass and the teacher would put you in a corner with a little hat on with two big ears and it was the donkey's hat and you were the donkey so you would sit in you would stand in the corner with your donkey's hat your back turned to the class and 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 you would be the donkey because you were messing around now I happened to mess around quite a bit because I wanted to be funny and I wanted to impact people and make people laugh and so on so so I was really taken with this ass thing uh, and and this donkey thing. So so I wrote a book, and I called it "Memory of a Donkey, but Not So Daft." And I thought that that was so clever, um, and and I just loved the idea of wit, the idea of words. And when I was reflecting, when we were talking the other day to, to prepare for this, and I was reflecting on why that might be, and I realized that actually. We didn't have many books at home, so we had a big, we had a big um, dictionary, the Litre, which is a classic French dictionary, which comes in in many many volumes, which my dad had saved a lot of money to buy. It was a leather bound edition, uh, and because he thought this would be important for our education, so that was the kind of book that we had. And we had something. We had another one, which was a book about the Commune, um, uh, the history of the Commune, which was a kind of rebellion in Paris. Um, because my family was incredibly left-wing. Uh, so that was another part of our education. But these were the kind of two two books that we had. But what we did a lot of is we listened to music. And what I realized is we never actually listened to music. We listened to songs. And one of the things culturally, which which I realized in time, the big difference between the UK and France is that in France, music is about words. 
So it's about chanson, it's about words, and it's about the text. In the UK, the music is much more loud and plays a much more important part in the in the listening experience. And I, and I thought, actually, my love of words probably came much more from listening to texts of classic French songs and French singers who are all very clever, very beautiful texts, which, which play with the words. And, and this playing with words, I guess, is, is what has defined most of what I've been doing. And, and it really comes from those childhood experiences where I realized that actually, if you know how to play with words, you actually know how to play with the world. You can, you can impact the world around you through the words that you use. You don't have to be the best looking kid. You don't have to be the strongest kid. You don't have to be amazing at sports. You don't have, because actually everything, our experience of the world comes from pictures and words. And, and so if you have that ability um, to play with words, then you can impact and influence. And it came very early on. I mean, I was, you know, I loved telling jokes. I loved the discussions that my family, we had a big family. So at Christmas, you know, there was 20 people around the table and it was endless conversation. You know, we'll start lunch at 11, we'll finish it at 11 at night. And all of that was around the table, shouting, arguing, discussing. And, and you quickly realize that actually words matter, you know, and, and have an incredible impact and, 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 and an incredible way of impacting your own life and, and and how you're seen and how you're viewed. So so that was my yeah, that was my love with words very early on. And and that I really should find out if that book still exists. But <laughs> doubt, I think that probably was not much more than a title. But I thought, you know, me- memory of an ass not so daft was quite clever. I was rather proud with that. I think that sounds fantastic. And yes, no, it's not uh, an ass hat. Uh, is not uh, what happened in British well, there schools. You go. you should Google Sorry, it. I'm sure the it, it's, it's quite nasty. I mean, if you think about it, that was quite a thing to make you stand at the front of the class, your back turned to the class mm. with, with a stupid hat on just to be laughing at you to say, look, you're an ass. It's quite something. It is. I mean, there's this idea of a dunce's hat, but I don't remember ever experiencing somebody being made to wear a dunce's hat. Well, there but, you go. Yeah. So. Interesting. And um, I'm curious around, you talked around the kind of, um, you know, the family, you know, it's I've been to France a lot. And that's very much my perception of France that, uh, you know, it's this sort of long uh, mealtime sitting around talking. Um, Is that something that with your own family, I know your kids are grown up now um is that something that you you've kind of replicated in your own adulthood not really not not really um well because our family is much smaller (laughs) to be fair so so there's only my wife the children and that's kind of it so so um that that never really happened to the same extent but also there's something culturally I mean I'll tell you so the first time we went uh, for a big family reunion in France, on the way back, my wife said, wow, well, that ain't going to happen again. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I mean, this was awful. You you argued the whole time. And I mean, obviously, you won't want to go anymore. And I, and I said to her, but I thought it was brilliant, <laughs> you know, I, I, because that's kind of what we do, you know. And so culturally, this idea of 
shouting, being loud, kind of saying, but that's stupid and da da da, and putting it all on the table and messing around with what's happening is kind of how we make sense of the world. Whereas I, I, I think to an extent culturally here, people think before they speak, whereas in France, people speak in order to think. And I think that's a, a, a much more, and, and I'm making a generalization. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm sure that's not true of every everything and everywhere. I also have to be careful because my idea of France is an idea of France, you know, 40 odd years ago, mm. rather than what France is today. I mean, I was, I was um, being laughed at uh, for my musical taste. Uh, by my sister who says you know there has been new there have been new singers <laughs> since you know and and also my niece and nephew always laugh at some of the words that I used because they're just not used anymore so so you know I have a I have a, a an image of France which is kind of yeah. st- stood still in time um but no I haven't I haven't really uh and I mean I've, I don't I don't want to jump ahead but so when I came to this country, I went to an international school. That international school had 70 odd different nationalities. We called it um, a bad thing to be, to. so we didn't speak French, we had to speak English. Um, we didn't, we, the reason for that was very clear. If everybody started to do their own thing in their own way, then actually nobody would ever communicate. So it, it was kind of, um accepted that you shared your culture through a common culture so you develop that kind of common culture and at that stage i started to find it utterly impossible to speak french so my children don't speak french and it is and well they say it's entirely my fault i think they could have studied when they were learning it but But, and it is because, and I tell you, I have a, a, a very good French friend who lives in London, not far from me, Jean-Marie. His wife is British too. But when Jean-Marie and I meet, just the two of us, we will speak in English. I, I find it physically impossible to speak French unless I'm in France. Um, so so I've, I've, my mother will tell you I even speak French with a British accent, which means I'm pretty homeless because people here tell me I speak English with a French accent. So I, I must just have a generally weird accent. But but I, I so I've become very British in a way, um, in in the way I act and the way because most of my life now has been spent here. So so no, I haven't really um, done the whole kind of big family French thing. Um, but at the same time, I still think of myself very much as a French person, which which is very bizarre. Mm. Do you know, I think partly the shouting and discussing and thing is a large family thing. I'm one of four kids. And, you know, when we all get together, you know, we've got lots of children between us and partners and what have you. And, yeah, it's like that. It's noisy. It's argumentative. But also... It's... You know, I think, I mean, it also depends on the type of So my family was highly political, really, mm. really political. Politics mattered a lot in our family. And and we had two kind of schools of thoughts in my family. So on my dad's side was a very large family um, and Catholic and very traditional in many, many ways. And on my mum's side was a smaller family very left wing um and and so when we when we all came together there was this clash of ideas um 
but both sides were very political and very caring about society and what was happening and what happened to people and 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 so so from the, from that point of view there was a lot of stuff about changing the world you know and and you can't just change the world quietly i don't think you can you know there's got, when ideas clash together there's going to be some some passion into that and and so I guess there's a loud passion expression. Mm. In, in, and, and I think that's, you're right, actually, that's probably much more likely to happen. And one of the big differences, as I said, is is we are a small family here. Uh, but my family in France was very big. So that's probably true that one of the differences is also about size rather than just culture. Talk to me about, um, you mentioned briefly, you went to an international school. When did you go there? Was that a sixth form yeah, so that was a yes. sixth form. That was sixth form. So I, so because I messed about, because I was funny, because I love all the activities, I always used to do the bare minimum that would take me onto the next class. Okay, and then came a point where I just miscalculated <clears throat> somewhat what the bare minimum was. So teachers got my mum in and said to my mum, "Look." And, and that stuck with me because it made us laugh, is not mature. So they said, he's just not matured enough to move on. And what they proposed was to hold me back a year. So they said, we'll hold him back a year. Um, and then he'll, he'll, you know, he'll grow up and, and it will be better. And that actually, that, that miscalculation, that, that messing up, um, actually changed my life. Because what happened was, because I'd been held back a year, the following year, that started this weird experiment. I mean, this was, you know, this was the 70s. There was lots of weird education. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there was a bunch of teachers who had decided to experiment on a different concept. And the concept was, was twofold. First, everything was to be done in groups. So there was no individual learning at all. Everything was to be done in groups. Second, Every topic was to be linked. So if you did mathematics, you would look at Roman numerals. Therefore, in history, you would do the Romans. Therefore, you would do philosophy. Of, you know, every topic was linked because the idea was that it would make a more rounded person if they could work in society and understand the whole rather than the parts. So I got put in that class. Um, which I absolutely loved because it was just about talking, discussing, everything makes sense suddenly because everything was linked. There was no, well, why am I learning this? You knew because it was linked to something else and, and everything made sense. And all this kind of conceptual stuff has always, always appealed to me. So that was a great class. But what it also meant was that the people teaching were completely versed with the weird stuff that was going on throughout the world in education. So they were all networked throughout the world. And the English teacher one day told us, I want to talk to you about this school in Wales. So I had to look up where that was. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you about this international college in Wales called the United World College. Now, they got me at United World because that resonated with all my politics and my ideas of society at the time. And it's a place where people from all over the world come. Um, and the idea is to build international understanding through education. And it was Court Han, uh, who 
you know, started Gordonstone and so so the educator called Hannah, that this idea that if you brought people at an age where they could still be influenced and you brought them from all over the world and they got to know each other and they got to discuss everything and they got to learn together and they got to do activities which are social as well as art, as well as sport, as well. So a completely rounded education with people from all over the world, you had a chance to change the world. <laughs> And it was called Atlantic College because it was partly founded at the time by uh, on this idea of NATO. And, and it was in a castle, remote castle in Wales. And the kicker was it was free. So it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. It was all entirely based on merit. So I thought this is really cool. This sounds really, really cool. Um, and she said and i know people and the interviews for the scholarships are being held in paris and guess what we were in a school where all the kids parents work for the railway we didn't even have to pay for the train so who is interested so i kind of talked to my mom a bit and she thought yeah whatever you know yet another one of these things uh, it won't go anywhere so it was me and and um another uh, another girl from the class we went on the train we went to paris this english teacher took us to the interview and before you know it, I was accepted and I got a scholarship. And so I left. So I left uh, for Wales. Uh, it was my first time on the plane. Uh, it was the cheapest possible ticket we could find. It was with Pakistan International Airline flying from Paris uh, to Heathrow. Um, I didn't speak a word of English. Uh, and I arrived at Heathrow and I just thought, what am I doing here? And there was somebody from college welcoming people and they put me together with this German family who'd rented a car and who drove me. I mean, this is crazy when you think about it. You, know, you were 16. I was, I was 16. I was 17 because I'd been held back. I guess I was 17. I'm in the middle of an airport looking like the townie that I was, you know, with my kind of jeans and, and my little leather jacket and whatever. Uh, <laughs> And there's this German family. Now, I knew a bit of German because I'd studied German at school. Um, and I'm in a car being driven to Wales from Heathrow to a place I've never been. I don't understand a thing that's going on to me. I spent two days crying, thinking, what have I done? What am I doing here? And it just changed my life. But, um, yeah, it was kind of a weird thing. And it was all about I just wanted to be different. I guess I just wanted to get out of Dijon and and explore the world. And this was my opportunity. I kind of, even at that age, realized that my life was pretty traced. You know, my, my life was planned. I was going to go. I was going to go to sixth form. I was going to go to the Castel College in France. I was going to do my thing. I was going to get my baccalaureate. I might go to Dijon University. I probably would fail because I wouldn't have had... Uh, the resilience, the courage, the application to study hard enough. And, you know, classes in French universities are 300 students. Um, so I wouldn't, I probably would have failed. Um, I would have probably got a job in the railway because the railway at the time, still is to be fair, it was incredibly unionized. So if your parents, if you had a parent in the railway, you got extra points at the entrance exam because somehow the assumption was it must be in your DNA that you would be a <laughs> railway person. So I probably would have ended up with it. So I had that life trace for me. And I, and, and I kind of saw this as being my chance uh, to get out, explore the world and, and, and see what that was all about. So that's how I ended up in, in Wales, in Hlantwit Major. And is it right that 
part of the philosophy of Atlantic College is to make the world a better place? Is that it? That's kind it, of. It the... is. I mean, it is that the entire principle is that the only way you will change the world is if people understand each other. And, and mm -hmm. so international understanding is really the kind of founding principle. If you understand each other and you realize what culture is about and you realize what people are about, you can, you, you'll have a chance to change the world. It's a double-edged sword because when you're 16 or 17, you take away the idea of making the world a better place. And making the world a better place is a hard thing to do. And so you're setting up yourself to fail because mm. most people who come out of that school will not change the world. Some have. I mean, there's some amazing alumni who have been in, you know, been astronauts. There's the UN is stuff full of people who went to the United World Colleges because there are now more than just the one. There's, there's some incredible people doing some incredible work. But if you don't take that route, it's very easy to then think you failed. And I realized pretty late on in my life, not my education, not when I was there, but I realized that actually, no, the ethos is not to change the world, is to change your world, yeah. is to say, actually, you can be a better person in the world that you're in and you can make an impact on the world that you're in, whether it's just your neighborhood, your street, your that, that the idea that you have had is not you're going to, you know, sign, I mean, and this is telling you, I, I should not be telling you this because it pictures me in a really bad light. But, you know, I was 17 and I was practicing my signature for the World Peace Treaty that I was called to sign. <laughs> you know, this is how bad I was. This is terrible. I had this really fancy signature because I was convinced that at some stage in my life, I would be standing there signing the final treaty that would put to rest all wars in the world. Um, so I kind of dream big, but actually... You have to rein that in, not because, you know, you lack ambition, but because you realize that actually, if you want to change the entire world, you have to start with your street. That actually, you know, my my neighbor is a much more important link in that chain of, of, of changing the world. That's some signature that I've practiced for a treaty that may or may not happen. And so it, it's a wonderful place and it, it's given me so much and it carried on this kind of education. There was two teachers in, in particular. It was Melvin Alfie who taught me English because I didn't speak English when <laughs> I arrived. So he was the English teacher. And Melvin had a love for words, uh, which kind of played right to what I love too. So so I, I learned, I mean, you know, I, I, I used to confuse tights and thighs. Uh, and we had we had we had hundreds of laughs around. Well, you know, for a Frenchman, I guess uh, that's not you know all sorts, of, all sorts of ridiculous conversation. Um, but but because there was people from all over the world, you could you could bounce around understanding of words. You could you know. So there was there was something fantastic about words that Melvin taught us. There was another uh, teacher, my art teacher, Martin Martin Post, the Dutch artist. And still very much um, painting, uh, a, a beautiful, beautiful artist who who was also very important because I was always into art. So so if I had an you know if I had had um, I, I wanted to go into advertising, 
that's kind of that, that was my dream and i wanted to go ad into advertising because it brought together the, the world of of art and words and and so i you know that that was always the thing and martin kind of gave me an appreciation of the visual aspect of the world and so i kind of realized that if you did want to change the world if you did want an impact then you had to be able to paint pictures with words mm. and paint pictures is great too but actually that this idea of vision this idea of visual and this idea of words actually put together were a magical combination um and and so these two people actually define most of my life. I mean, if I, if I think about, you know, there's been a collection of people. We are the products of a collection of teachers. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I struggle because I always use the phrase back in the 80s when they were advertising for teachers in the UK, there was this fantastic tagline, which was, everybody remembers a great teacher. But I have so many. I've been lucky. I had so many. But, but you know, Martin and Melvin, were really major influences on my life in terms of um, helping me understand who I was and 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 helping me become who I became. And, and that was really through this combination of the beauty of words and the beauty of images uh, and, and, and how conceptually they're very, very similar. You know, you can design a world through both of those avenues. And if you can bring them together, you have something pretty amazing. So yeah, so they were they were um, the people who really influenced me, and and it's funny because I never thought until we talked about this link. Words matter to me. Words mm. and pictures matter to me, and 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 actually they kind of define a lot of what I do. Um, and and I tell you, so my mom eventually left Dijon and now lives in Angoulême, and and Angoulême. Um, is not known for many things, but it's known as the um, comic book capital of the world. So, so Angoulême has a as a, a a big show once a year, the international comic book um, reunion and thing. And comic books aren't very big in the Anglo. So, so they're very um, it's, comic books are either for kids here or they're the sci-fi stuff, mm -hmm. you know, superhero or whatever. But in France, everything is comic books. I mean, if you go into a French, you know, go into a French library, you will find thousands and thousands of comic books. It's a very, very big thing in France. And comic books in France tend to be um, about history. They tend to be about philosophy. They tend to be about all sorts of things, or they're asterisks as well. And there's, you know, so comic books are huge in France. And I realized that actually they're the combinations of words and pictures. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they were what I was reading most of in my youth there were you know there was a, a a magazine that we used to get which was called piff gadget which was a magazine of cartoons and stuff for kids and my my parents got it it was the magazine originally of the communist party uh and and so that was given to kids very early on but it wasn't it wasn't all propaganda i guess <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of cool cartoons in there but, but i was i was you know brought up in this in this environment of pictures and i i and, and that kind of visual aspects and word aspect just really stayed with me. And when these two characters of Melvin and Martin kind of came together, I thought, this is a beautiful world. And did you then, because you went on to study at um, St. Andrews in I did. Scotland. What I did. did you choose to study there? 
so I chose. I, so I went to Scotland because Melvin said to me, "You need to be in a smaller place. Don't go for one of those huge universities. You are too social. You need to be somewhere that." that and and so St Andrews kind of fit the bill. You know, it's an eight thousand people city, four thousand inhabitants, four thousand students. It's a tiny university. It's very closed on itself. And so he said, you know, this this would be great. So I applied, uh, and that and the other advantage to answer your question is that Scottish degrees were four years instead of three, but they were also much more open. So you don't specialize very quickly. The first two years, you study whatever you want to study. Mm. So I ended up doing a weird version of the PPE, except in, in, instead of philosophy, politics, and economics, uh, it ended up being um, philosophy, psychology, uh, politics. Uh, so we kind of dropped the E because I <laughs> PPP. I was, well, I lost. I lost the E. Uh, I lost it when I um, realized that trigonometry was not going to be my friend. Uh, I'm not a numbers guy. Uh, so, so, and then, then weirdly, I also realized that I made the wrong choice when philosophy started to go into logic and you realize that actually that's just about as confusing as math. Um, but anyway, so, so I ended up doing a, a weird degree in, in philosophy and international relations, but I studied all sorts of things in the meantime. I even did a module in management. I did all sorts of weird and wonderful things, which is the beauty mm. uh, of, of the Scottish education. And 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 really the, you know, the magic for me when I look at my education was I was never asked to specialize. So I started in France, no specialization. I came into the UK, did the International Baccalaureate, which is still really, really open uh, compared to British air levels at the time. Yeah. I went to the Scottish degree where, again, until you get to the third year, you can do pretty much you know, whatever you want. Uh, so, so yeah, my education was very, very broad. Um, but Melvin was right, actually. Most of what I did at St Andrews was very little to do with the education side, much more to do with the um, education in the broader sense. <laughs> uh, the University of Life. The University of Life <laughs> sense. I, I started uh, to get really involved in the student union. And in particular, uh, I, I became um, the head of the debating society, which we called in, in St. Andrews the convener. So I was convener of the debating society. Um, and again, because it was about words and it was about arguing and it was everything I loved. So so I I didn't know anything about debates. I was taken by a, a, a friend of mine who is now uh, an historian uh, for the city of London, uh, Alexander Schulenberg, who was a, a German um, gentleman who I, I met at college. He was a fellow student uh, at college and he went to um, St. Andrews, but he was a year above me. So he said, hey, come to that debating thing. It's in the old parliament chamber, which was St. Andrews used to have the old parliament chamber. Um, and and I, I just went to my first debate and I just fell in love with the idea that, you know, you could you could do what we did in France, which is, you know, in the French education system, you learn to argue both sides. So if you write in France, any essay in France has to obey a certain form. And the form is thesis antithesis, synthesis, thesis, mm. antithesis, synthesis. That's what you learn to do in France. So you take any question that you ask, you answer it one way, then you answer it the exact opposite way, and then you do a synthesis of both ways. 
and that educationally gets you to understand that actually things are not as simple yes as it's just like that so so every essay everything in france is always done that way the other difference is in france we all have to do the philosophy baccalaureate it is a compulsory thing to do every french citizen has to do philosophy and have to do a paper on philosophy so all this world of ideas kind of collided in this debating thing because you were given a motion you could be either side of the motion you had to argue whatever side you ended it on you had to build convincing argument you had to impact you had to influence you had to entertain you had to all the things that i love so i spent a lot of time in the debating chamber at university um and obviously, you know, studying philosophy and whatever else just kind of made the same thing with with messing up with ideas. So that really made me think about politicians then and how you could see a politician vociferously putting one argument forward, but then sometime later putting a completely counter argument and, forward. And I think the danger of this kind of education is that it's easy to forget about the synthesis bit. So you become quite clever and you're enamored with your own cleverness. So you go, aren't I great? Just throw mm -hmm. it at me and I can argue it. But you have to remember that at the end, you have to have a view. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that the cleverness is only there to help you make a stand to help you understand what you believe to be true based on arguments. So it's it's not just a belief taken out of nowhere. I've argued it, I've, and now this is what I stand for. And I think the trouble, especially over the, you know, the recent years, is that we've either gone down the view of we won't look at both views, so I'm going to make it really simple. There's only one view you know, is the thesis, and that's mine, and that's my belief, and it's right. So we either, we've polarized ourselves um, because we've got one camp doing thesis, one camp doing antithesis. We've had a number of politicians, especially in the UK, who are really enamored with their own cleverness, so, so, so love that game of arguing, and I can argue this or that, you know. I mean, you know, I don't know if it is true or not, but it's been widely reported that, for example, Boris Johnson here in the UK had two articles ready, one for Brexit, one That's against right, it, yeah. and, and was, you know, and decided to take whichever one he was prepared to take. And I think that's that's really an important exercise to do because you have to do thesis and antithesis. But at some stage, you have to, you have to say, yeah. on the basis of this, this is what I believe to be true. And if that is true, then until the facts change, and you have to be open to the facts changing, then your view can't change just out of convenience and cleverness. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's the danger. Um, so I abhor the thing that says it's very sim simple, because when people say simple, then usually mean simplistic and they take a half-baked view. The world is not simple. No. Um, but you can make it simple if you know how to th synthesize things. I really struggle with that word. There's a lot of S's and THs, and we don't have <laughs> THs in France. Um, so, but you have to be able to bring things together and you have to be able to make them coherent for other people. Uh, and, and I think that's the skill. Um, and, and that's the power. Everything is politics, you know, and, and, and it's the same, you know, and, and we may come to organization, but, but I really struggle with people say, oh, well, this is all politics, like it was a bad thing. Everything mm -hmm. is politics. Yes. Politics is just impacting and influencing, and everything in the world is about impact and influence. Yeah. And 
and it's not a bad thing. It's not a dirty thing. If you remember that it is not about being clever and it is mm. not about winning and it is not about, it's about understanding different point of views and trying to bring them together in a coherent whole that can actually make the world move forward. And mm. I think that's the power of, of argument in, the, mm. in its broader sense and rhetoric in its broader sense. It's interesting, isn't it? I see so many people who um, are living their lives, their work lives, um, in in a kind of how they think the world should be <laughs> rather than how it is. So someone said that to me the other day. Well, it should be like this. And I said, yes, but it isn't. Yeah. And so we have to live and make our decisions and our behaviours in the way that it is. Um, which is you know, political it, it, and and you know it is it, that was what we were talking about was sort of politics and influencing and they wanted it to be simpler but it's not but it and and it's um and again i don't just want to jump ahead but this this is why i wrote my last book because i thought you know actually Anything we read about business and leadership is a lie, and it's a lie on, on different ways, and, 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 and I won't go into the whole of the detail. But, but one of the fundamental lies, actually, it is written from the point of view of this is how it should be. This is how leadership should be. This is how organization, or, or this is some aspire state of this is what great leaderships look like. So it's all about an, an, you know, an idea, but actually it's never about this is how it is. And it's messy and it doesn't obey a kind of cool model and it never, ever fits in a three point recipe and it's never a clean pyramid and it's ne <laughs> it's never a process flow. It's never it's just a bunch of people trying to make sense of the world. And so what do we do in that mess? That was the question in this reality, rather than saying, well, you know you really need this and and you think yeah but if that's all you've got then you'll fail anyway or you really need that i mean you know i have a shelf behind me full of books and i can take you books that have the complete opposite title you know for success you need to control for success you need to delegate for success you need, and and you think and the reason for that is because you need all of those things so what do you do as a practitioner in everyday life when everybody tells you well it's not as simple as that how do you how do you evolve in that world? And then I go right back to this point about um, Atlantic College, about United World College of the Atlantic, and about all of you discuss things in your neighborhood. You try to make sense of the world together. You, 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 know, you, you look at arguments from both sides. You make a synthesis. You make a call. You keep open to the environment that you're evolving on. Is there a new fact? Anything new? You build networks of relationship that informs those thoughts that you have. You, you, so there's a whole lot of things you can do. But what you can't do is go for this kind of trite, one sentence leadership is about this or because it just isn't no and, and and i think what we don't do enough as parents as educator as leaders is to try to work a method a philosophy for how am i going to evolve in this in this life of mine rather than constantly looking for an answer which just doesn't exist and because we look for an answer that doesn't exist, we tend to give a lot of our power to people who are no different from you. Yeah. You know, and, and that's true in my occupation, as in many others. We go, oh, well, you know, 
he's a, or she's a speaker on the stage. They must be right. You know, they've written so many books. They must be right. Um, no, they just have more time than you. And actually, <laughs> aren't that busy. So, so they can read stuff you can't read and write stuff you can't write. Not because you can't, but just because you don't have the time. You don't have mm. the space. It's their job just the same as it's your job, you know. So you mentioned uh, your current book, but let's go back to um, where you and I first met, actually, yeah. uh, when we were both working at, at Hay Group. Um, and what happened there that kind of led you to, uh, you know, into that kind of writing books, speaking on big stages? So I, I, when I left university, I started my career in retail banking. Uh, I went to a management trainee scheme with what was then Abbey National, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now Santander. I was bought by Santander, but uh, as a management trainee and um, as a branch manager um, and I stayed a few years and then I realized, okay, my life is just going to be boring now because it's just going to be the same job, just in bigger branches. I was spotted uh, by my regional director who brought me on to do a project uh, which was about culture change for the bank. And it was about the first uh, customer relationship management system uh, with this new thing called the internet that was kind of becoming quite big. Um, and so I started working at head office on this project for the retail bank. And I met a consultant. I'd never met a consultant before. Uh, I didn't know there was such a thing as a consultant, but we worked with an American consultancy called Action System. And there was this guy who flew from America to talk to us. And he had a laptop, which I'd never seen before. That was the first laptop I came across. And I thought, this is so cool. This guy <laughs> literally comes in, talks a bit, does a few things, brings an enormous amount of value. That's my, because I'm a consultant now, I have to you say have that. You have to say I'm that. Not <laughs> sure, I'm not sure he brought any, but, but he flew all over the world. He had a laptop. It was really cool. And also it appealed to my sense of, I have a very low boredom threshold. So when things start to go into implementation and it's going to be the same old, same old, I can't, I, I sort of lost interest. So so this idea of working on numerous projects, so I, I befriended this gentleman, and we we were chatting one day, and he said to me, but you know, you love this idea of culture and people and leadership, because that's kind of the part of the project you're working on. You love the idea of consulting. I'm sure they have a branch here in the UK, but in the US, there's a consultancy specializing in this people stuff, and it's called the Hay Group. Um, and he said, you should look them up. And I thought absolutely nothing of it. I did absolutely nothing with it because we were really busy moving into the implementation phase of the project until one Sunday I opened the Sunday Times. And at the time, the Sunday Times used to have a recruitment little booklet in the middle. It's now like two ads or something. But at the time, it was literally like a supplement with jobs. And there was an advert for the Hay Group. And I thought, hang on, this is the thing that this guy was talking about. And I was looking for a way out because I was hoping to, you know, to become um, much more interested in in different bits and different stuff so um i thought i'll apply so i applied and yet again they took this weird guy with a retail banking background and thought oh, we can do something with him which was my first big career break and and he's a uh, uh, was because hey group now is, is conferry and i have no uh, working knowledge of conferry but at the time the great strength of the hay group and i'm sorry this is not meant to be an insult to you but it just brought a bunch of weird people together. <laughs> it was it was that's not a, an insult. <laughs> it was a place 
that that really took weird people and thought you know what if we bring all this weirdness of experience this mix of background this mix, and we put them together in a room we can serve our clients better and so it took a chance on one more weird person i discovered there was many of us uh, when I joined, <laughs> but, but i thought it was it was quite courageous at the time um so yes so i started to work at hay and because of that um and, and Hay, as, as you well know, operated more as a marketplace internally. So there was no trace, you know, you're going to work on this project. It wasn't a kind of McKinsey where you were given your marching order and this is what you're going to do for the next six months. You had to find work and you had to find work by connected with people and you could connected with people and, and you, you kind of had quickly to build your own value. This is the value I bring. And the value I brought was the value I'd always brought. I was visual and I messed about with words. So I started to kind of be the guy that people came to to make PowerPoint more impactful when we were doing a presentation or think about how we can present things differently or, or, or write reports differently or development guides. With I mean, nobody had worked out you could, you know, in a development guide that you could put a picture of a book in an electronic document. I knew how to do that because I was interested in visual programming and stuff. So, so... That kind of became the thing. And then, sorry, long answer again, but there was a yearly event at Hay Group, which is called the ICM, the International Client Meeting, where all the clients came together and, and Hay would put on this conference in, in a European city, you know, and there was loads of speakers. And I, I, it was the first conference I ever went to in my life where I saw speakers on stage talking. And I thought, this is like debating on acid. It's debating <laughs> without anybody answering back. You know, it's just you on the stage. But also I thought, this is how you change the world. You change the world by speaking to a lot of people. So I know I've been saying you can change your world and your neighborhood, but that's just me. If I can get on that stage, my neighborhood has just got bigger. I can have an impact. I can, I can entertain with a big E, I don't mean entertain as cheap, make people laugh, but actually kind of bring people into a different state of mind in order to impact and influence the way they work. This, this, is, this is brilliant. Um, this is everything that, that I aspire to be. These are people who've written books, my love of words, come on stages, my love of debate and influence, and they make a living out of it. This is fantastic. So I went to Nick Bolter, who was the, the CEO at the time and, and, and was in charge of the, um, actually, he was not the CEO. He was in charge of the ICM. He became the CEO later. But I said to Nick Bolter, I want to be on that stage. And Nick kind of laughed, thinking, oh, God, what are we going to do with him? He doesn't even, you know, he listen to that accent. Um, but actually, a few years later, he gave me the chance and he, he gave me the chance to, he said, well, look, you don't really have, but you can, you can run a, a session. And then, and then I, 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 I mean, I'm trying to speed up here. Just, I, I, but then I had this idea for the book. So I, I thought, you know, I can write something. Um, and it was very much back to my education. It was very much about thesis, synthesis. Uh, an antithesis because I just thought I abhor leadership books because they're just about leadership and leadership out of context makes no sense and and I abhor organizational theory books because they just don't take the leadership bit enough into so I had this idea that I wanted to write this business book which was about all of it 
the kind of, I wanted to write a sort of leadership organizational book. And Nick, Nick was, I guess Nick, I, I'm going to be, I think Nick was trying to keep me in the firm at the time. So he thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll all right, I'll give him a chance for that as, as a way of keeping me quiet and, and stopping me looking elsewhere or whatever. Um, so I, I started researching and writing that book. Um, and that was really my, my first proper writing exercise. Then I encountered, so he, he, there was another person called Helen, Helen Merlis. Helen Merlis kind of was, in a, she was one of the writers of Hay Group. She published a number of books. So she kind of took me under a wing, amazing uh, woman who, who, who really helped me understand what the craft of writing was. Uh, I, re I will forever remember that sentence where she said, look at the sentences you really love in your book and take them out because you wrote them for yourself. Uh, you, you're, just, you're just writing to prove to yourself how clever you can be with words, but they make no sense to anybody else. So she was fantastic. She gave me loads of tips like that. But she also introduced me to publishers. And my first publisher said, okay, so you want to write, if I get it, if I understand you correctly, a kind of leadership organizational development book. And I said, well, yeah. And she said, here is your problem. If you go into any bookshop, there's a leadership shelf and there's an organizational development shelf. Choose your shelf, right? Because your book doesn't have a shelf. So where is it going to be? So it was kind of an all opening into how the world of publishing works, how people choose books, what they're looking for. Anyway. Long story short, I then wrote The Connected Leader, which was my first book, but in 2007, I think it came out. Um, Cogan Page and Helen Cogan published it. Um, and so The Connected Leader came out. Uh, and that, again, changed my life because at that stage, Nick said, well, you know, you've written the book now, so you can have the platform. And why don't you speak at the next international client meeting? So I did this speech based on the connected leader, which was really my first speech. Got a lot of feedback from colleagues saying, okay, this was good. This was terrible. This was, so I, I kind of started to learn the craft and realize that actually on the stage is completely different than in the debating mm. chamber and whatever else. And so, so this was my first, I never see that, that feeling has never left me. I hate what I do. I am, I am utterly petrified before I do any of the speeches that I do, I always say to, to my wife, you know, Catherine, why do I do that? You know, I, I am scared. I am, I, and then I have an amazing time and I come out and I think, oh, that's why I do this, you know, because, because this is everything I love until the next time where I think, why do I do that again? So you hate it up until the moment you step on the stage and then yeah. are you fine? I, I, I am fine i am i i realized pretty early on that every speech is different not just because i try to tailor all of my speeches to what i do but every speech is different because the audience is different and and there is a thing you need to understand with an audience is whilst they don't speak they shape the speech as much as you do through the way there is there is something happening in, when a group of people is together. You can sense it. You can feel it. I don't know if I can explain it, but there's something that happens. And you know how things are landing. And you know whether things are going well. So you are constantly adjusting. And so when you're in a speech, it's just, for me anyway, all about the audience. Because I know what I'm going to say. I know what I, what I, what I want to convey. But I am constantly 
it's like your brain is split in two. There's part of it which is doing the mechanic of speaking, and there's a part of it which is kind of standing about analyzing what's going on that says, okay, where do we go next on the base? So you have no time to be frightened. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it genuinely is a, is a state of being, which I think I have never experienced anywhere else but on the stage, because it's kind of an, it, there can be 5,000 people. I think it's incredibly intimate. And your job is all about the audience. And I, I absolutely love that, of making sure that those people leave the room different from when they entered it. And, that, and, and so I think from that point of view, I kind of forget all about myself and focus on them. Afterwards, I am elated because I'm full of adrenaline. Actually, I'm also utterly shattered. Um, I, I, I am utterly useless for the rest of the day uh, because I am com completely gone. Uh, and, and when you write books and then people say, oh, could we do a book signing and stuff? That's the hardest part because you've gone. You just... And, and, you know, or, or we'll stay for dinner and you think, oh, I just want to lie in a, in, in a room somewhere. I'm just, a, you know, so so you got all that energy is gone. And then you start to, I start to worry again. Oh, well, I shouldn't have done this. or I shouldn't have said that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe if I put it like this, it would have been better. And blah, 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 blah. So you kind of, you know, I sort of try to think, OK, well, that's just a lesson for next time. You know, just but, you know, you kind of are going to forget and, and you're going to get it wrong. So I have a real uh, anxiety afterwards about what has just happened and what could have been different but you know what uh, what if is the start of every um, uh, depression state uh, so you know uh, I tend to avoid the what ifs if I can. How do you prepare that if, if every speech is different do you just have a key set of messages that you want to get across and you see how it evolves or do you prepare more than that? Yeah, no I, I will um so for every speech, I will now, of course, there's stuff. I'm I'm not a people engage me to speak about what I know. So so mm -hmm. if you if you come to me and say, do a speech about AI, then I'll I'll tell you somebody who will be much better than me. I'm not a now. If you ask me what is the impact of AI on leadership, then then okay, then I can try to do something. So I have a, a knowledge base that I draw on. I research. And so the first thing I do is I write an outline, a script, if you will, kind of a, a you know, just an outline, a sketch of, okay, here are, here is my main argument. Uh, and I do that for every speeches. For some, it's easier because a lot of clients who have seen me speak, they, could you do the same as you did last time, but mm. make it fit our context, which is much easier. So I, I learned a lot about the organization and the audience I'm going to speak to. I look at the the theme that people want me to speak on and I sketch out an outline. After that, I have a number of modules in my head that kind of slot in place mm. and say, well, okay, I can use this, that, that story, that example, that this, that this, that, that. Um, so everything is tailored in that way. But it's tailored. I mean, I always say it's a bit like a, you know, it's kind of weird because clients will say to me, uh, we want something for us. But then at the same time, they kind of want your greatest hits because they say, oh, but could you talk about this and that? Because we know mm -hmm. that resonates with people. So you're in that weird, it's like if you go to a rock and roll concert and the singer never sings their greatest hit, you're going to come out a bit annoyed. Um, so so you're trying to mix new messages with all messages. So that's the craft of, of writing the speech. And, you know, it'd be more or less complex depending on what people, if people want me to do something that I've never done before, then obviously I'll start, I'll start from scratch. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of you know, how I prepare. 
And so at some point you left Corn Ferry and went into the world of writing more books, consulting so, for yourself and speaking. Yeah. So when when so the book The Connected Leader did well. It was well received. And and in no small part thanks to Hair Group, who also, you know, helped push it with their client, became, you know, a kind of a group UK sort of book that people put but he did really well and then something um that the speaking started to go well I did a number of things for Hay group UK uh, a number of platforms platforms in Europe uh, and then the problem started where clients started to call saying could you do a speech or could you come and do this session for us and then the publisher started to say could you do another book now, I was a director at Hay Group at that stage. So my formal job was to open doors, find big projects, and find work for other people. And all my clients, or my, not mine, but all Hay Group clients who are doing were calling me to say, we want you. So that doesn't work. That didn't work in my no. job. It started to be a really uncomfortable position to be in. So I went to see, I think Leslie uh, by that stage was, was the CEO of the managing director of Hay Group UK. And, and I... I made a deal. I said, I can't do this. It's just too awkward. I want to write another book. I'm getting loads of speaking opportunities, which I kind of don't want to take because they don't fit with what we're trying to do as a firm. I'm going to be out. It's better if I'm out. But because this was not about parting in bad terms or whatever else, but what I'm what I'm prepared to do is I'll stick around. You know, if, if there's stuff you want me to do as a hair group, if there's bits you want me to continue, there's clients that I've been hair group clients for for as long as I've been there. I'm not going to take clients with me. I mean, you don't take clients. They do whatever they want. So, so you know, if clients want to still consult with hair, but still want me to manage the project, which I'm managing, I'm happy to do that, you know, whatever. So we had this kind of really nice relationship where I carried on for a bit doing stuff with Hay Group. But in the meantime, I really started on my own and wrote my second book, um, Leadership. And then, you know, that did well. And then I got more platforms. So then my own organization, my own business developed. Um, and I started doing most of my work on my own. And eventually, you know, as a group, because a group was an internal market, when people change, they don't necessarily know you. So my relationship with Hay Group Corn Ferry just kind of fizzled at that point. And, and, and um, but, you know, still in touch with many of the networks from, from Hay Group and the alumni, which is, it's a bit of a, you know, it's like college and university and whatever else, you know, there's a, there's a thing that goes on. So, so then that's when I started to write and I started to speak and really it, it's, um, it's a, it, well, it makes me feel good about myself. Uh, it, it's probably quite big headed, but the way I describe my business is it's just rock and roll. Yeah. So you put an album out, you go on tour, you get, enough life experience to write your next album. And, and that's kind of what I do. So the consulting is my way to keep in touch with business so that I can understand what's going on and understand what's going on in the world. So I can write my next book. Mm. Uh, and my next book then gives me the opportunity to go on tour because people think, oh, he's got something new to say. And then while I'm on tour, I get to meet people who say, hey, you know, would you do a bit of consulting for us? And then there's a new idea that comes on. So I've been, you know, writing books every two or three years based on 
you know what is going on and what I think I can bring so so that's really kind of most of my work is about writing and speaking I I do one or two engagements with clients a year a sizable consulting proper development engagement um but that's about it and then because then you know I can do those properly and really get to understand what's going on and then you know write another book and, and whatever so that's kind of how yeah that's kind of how my business developed um yeah and that's... your current book then so this is what number is this seven seventh book well it depends how you count because number number six was really three ebooks so you can say seven or nine depending <laughs> on. How you want to... <laughs> yeah no seven. this is my seventh one so how did this one come about? Because it's different to the previous Yeah, so, so so like I said, it was this thing about what is the truth? So, you know, I'm, I'm, my children now are grown up. They've left, they're in the world of work. And I'm getting older. So I'm thinking, what do I want to pass on? You know, if, if I look at everything I've done, and if I look at everything that is being done in the world of work, in organization, is there any any rules? Because people love rules, you know, rules for success. What would they be? And I thought, well, they're not rules that says do this. They're things you need to understand in order to develop your own way. You know, and I, if I look back at, at the people I've worked with, they all had their own, you could call it philosophy of work, you could call it whatever you call it, they have a way. They have a way. And, and I like to think about it as executive maturity. There's a bunch of people who just seem comfortable in their own skin. And where do you get that comfort from? You know, what are the rules to develop that way, that way of leading, that way of impacting, that way of influencing? And they're not about whether you have to have this technique, that technique, this attribute, that attribute. Because, like I said, I've got 600 books or whatever behind me, and they all will give you one. But how, what are you to do with that? They're about really this thing of understand how to be. And then if you understand that, it's kind of like your global positioning system. You know, if I understand how a GPS works, then I can be anywhere. I can be in any destination rather than people saying you need to turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right, which is. Okay. So so that's kind of the book is really about those 20. And I, I ended up with 20, those kind of 20 rules of that help you develop you, you know, for, for whatever you want to be, mm. for whatever you want to do. But those kind of things about what it is that you need to understand. The second thing which is different is it's incredibly personal. So for each of the rules, it's one story which happened to me uh, in my consulting. So not necessarily to me, but it, it, it one consulting story um, which brings that idea to life. So so I've looked back and, and there are real stories that really happened. And, and it was fantastic because it made force me to look back and think, oh, yeah, that's where. So different parts of the world, different stories. So I hope it's much more. Uh, it, it's not a dry text in that way. Um, and. And so I, I, you know, I, I was lucky. I've had different publishers over the years and, and one of my publisher kind of became my agent. So so I'm, I'm working with Routledge. This is my first book with, with Routledge um, as my publisher, who have been incredibly fantastic in, in working with me. But we, so we're trying to make it a book which is much more. Uh, I'm hoping that if you pick it up, there's two things that are going to happen is one, you're going to understand that this is really about you and b you're going to avoid some of the 
classic mistakes that people are likely to make because I made them and some of my clients made them. So you might as well benefit from our experience rather than uh, getting your own. So, so it's kind of a, you know, that's kind of the book that it is. Uh, and to bring it back to this idea of words on pictures, uh, the title is, this is not a leadership book. And the reason it's titled that is in homage to Magritte, the Belgian artist and his famous, this is not a pipe picture. Uh, which is actually the official title of that picture is The Treachery of Images. Um, and the point he was trying to make when he when he painted This Is Not a Pipe or The Treachery of Images is it looks like a pipe, but it's not a pipe because you can't hold it, you can't feel it, you can't smoke it, you don't know how it works, you don't know what it feels. And for me, leadership books have always been that. They say they're about leadership, but they're not leadership. Because you can't hold it, you can't feel it, you can't, they're not about leading. Leading is messy. Leading is about uh, finding your own way. Leading is about um, getting it wrong, getting it right, sometimes not quite knowing which is which. It's about waking up in the morning with a burden of responsibility you don't quite know what to do with, with loads of problems, which you know you're equipped to solve because that's why you've been promoted and you're so excited to solve them, but you can't really because you're going to demoralize the entire family, blah, 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 and you can't do it all on your own. Or you, you know, It's about hundreds of difficulties and processes. And so leadership is not this model of simplicity and these kind of one-liners on LinkedIn and whatever, which are highly appealing, but they're just lies. And that's why I wanted, and and, and I know uh, it was courageous of Radcliffe to go with the title, this is not a leadership book, because the, you know, there are only two things that that title evokes in you is, well, what is it? Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Uh, so so I'm, I'm waiting for the, uh, I'm waiting for the, uh, Amazon reviews where people give me one star for saying, well, it is. A <laughs> he just lied. <laughs> in, a kind of, in a kind of pantomime-esque way. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> but I was, and, really, you know, I was really hoping to kind of pitch it that way. And when is it out? It's out in February. That's the plan. I've just had the uh, first proof. So we're working through that now. Uh, so it should be out uh, back end of February. I think 26 uh, is the current plan date, although... I'm not sure whether that's likely to change or not. But it's pre-order now on Amazon already. It's all out Brilliant. there. And for the first time, which I'm so excited about, there's going to be an audio book. Uh, I've always um, wanted to have an audio book. I'm not reading it, by the way. So don't. Oh, I'm just, I was just going to ask. I was hoping no, no. you were going to read it. Oh, no, the... Um, no, the, the um, audiobook publishers actually have a, their own roster of people who do the reading uh, bit. But um, yeah, so that's going to be out, uh, I think, a couple of months later than the book. But um, and it's the fir yeah, first time we'd have an audio book, which I'm really excited about because that's never it's, it, There's a couple of interesting things. I, I remember uh, when we spoke previously, you you were telling me about, you know, part of the reason why, you know, 80,000 words is what people were aiming for was to do with the thickness of the book on a shelf. Yeah. Um, but also something else you just said, um, which was around, you know, your first book, Pick Your Shelf. But yeah. actually in the world of Amazon or other online retailers, there's not really such a thing as a shelf because but people, it's, got, it, it's different. But it's even worse, though. So so you would think that that's quite freeing because, you know, well, there's no longer a shelf. But actually, there are where there was... Yeah, well, if you go to a physical bookstore anymore, the business category is just one now. So there's probably just one shelf anyway, because there's a lot less is sold that way. But actually on Amazon, 
there's millions of shelves because the, mm-hmm. the, the categories have become so yes. narrow. Yes. So now you go even worse. You go pick your category and your category mm-hmm. is no longer just leadership. It's, you know, it's divided into hundreds and hundreds of little categories. So, so in a way, it's kind of even worse. Now, the book size, interestingly, that's completely changed, I think. Um, I think it's changed for a number of reasons. First, ebooks. It doesn't matter whether your book is thick or thin on ebook because nobody will ever know. Um, it doesn't even have page numbers anymore, but percentage of finishing or, or location. Um, there's the fact that most books are now bought online in the in the business book category anyway. Uh, so that again makes it makes it. Um, People don't really judge the thickness of it because they only see the little icon. But there's also the economics of publishing. So the economics of publishing mean actually thin books can be quite helpful because they're cheaper to produce than thick books at the cost of paper and so on and so forth. Um, and I think also because books, physical books are mainly sold at airport location, train stations or, or mobility stuff, Thin books are quite appealing because they're not heavy. Mm. Uh, and, and and if you're on a flight, you know, this is why my, my, my first publisher used to talk about um, books in terms of flight times. So she would say, oh, well, that's a that's a London to New York. You know, oh. Or, oh, well, that's a London to Amsterdam. You know, who moved my cheese? London to Amsterdam. Yeah. It's in the air. You're done. You know, um, so so she, she used to categorize them like that. Oh, this is a really super long haul. You know, Australia, this is a... <laughs> uh, but... But I think, you know, you, you now people are looking for stuff which is much more accessible, much quicker because attention is lower because there's so much information out there. So, so there's always a thing about about the size of the book. It's really hard for an author, I think, to not be driven by world count, or at least it was for me. And I know a few authors who have been who who have shared that with me too. But the word count is this thing that 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 and and it's always bothered me because I think a lot of leadership books should just be articles. You know, they just became books because yes. I wanted a book, but it's actually an article that has been made really big. Yes. Incredibly repetitive, the same yeah. story and over again, or the thing has been padded out because yeah. it needed to be 60, 50, 70, whatever. Yeah. Let call. And that's always bothered me. So word count to me has, has been a bit of a, uh, yeah, a bit of a, a thing hanging, you know, there in the back of my mind as a, which has not been the most joyful of a relationship with word count thinking mm. actually, you know, do I need to make this longer? But but that's not fair on the reader because you're just repeating yourself. Or and again, that was one of the, you know, freeing thing of working with Routledge, which was this. We, we discussed it at the onset and decided actually, you know what, this is going to be what it's going, what it needs to be uh-huh. for the reader, not not for the publisher or the author. Okay, right. I'm going to finish off with three quick questions for okay. you. Uh, quick fire. Uh, strap line for your story or title for your story words and pictures make your world you know i think i think something along those lines i i i'm not i'm not a great copywriter i never made it into advertising but uh yeah some something something like that i think it's this association which which again i have to thank you for because i never really thought about it that way as the as the kind of you know words and pictures defining me uh, I think in into of oh, oh, my journey anyway mm-hmm. um, but but it's very true I think that's kind of that kind of would be the one okay and what about some advice to your younger self uh, I th- you're all right 
you're all right. I think I think you know you're okay. It, it's and I and I don't know even now in my fifties whether whether I'm I'm there yet. But when you stop thinking that you have to prove yourself, is when you start really proving yourself. I think it's when you start being really effective. Mm. When you think actually this is not about proving. You're all right. You know you're all right. And as an author, it's the same. You know, and and I think that's what Helen was saying to me when she said, "Take that, take that sentence out." Mm. You're just trying to proving yourself. And as a speaker, it was the same. You know, I became a much better speaker when it stopped being about me, focusing on me, being worried, being scared, being the, mm. just saying, "No, focus on them." You know, mm. you're on the stage. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You got to the stage. Where else? You know. So focus on the audience, and 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 I think that comes from this thing from childhood, and I. I you're all right. You know, you're yeah. okay. You you know, you don't, no donkey hats. <laughs> no donkeys. And what about a book recommendation? Oh, um, I'm surrounded by... You've got uh, uh, hundreds, thousands uh, behind you. Yeah. Um, well, if you... Oh, gosh. Mr. Barnard from Hay Group. I don't know if you remember <laughs> David, but he used to say Very actually well. all, all leadership books have been written and mainly by the great authors of history. So so read nonfiction and then you learn a lot more. But uh, I, I tell you, there's there's any, anything written by Tom Peters. Uh, for okay. Just because I think Tom, and, and if you're on Twitter or, or, or on social media generally, I think I just want to be Tom Peters to have that energy that is never lost. Um, and and that thirst for changing things that is never lost is is exceptional and his writing is fun um so so that but there is one in particular which i have been recommended for years and and it's called love is the killer app now it's a it's a it's a killer app app a p as in an as in okay. application yeah uh, by tim sanders and and Love is the Killer App is a book I've been recommended for years. It was written. So you have to understand the context. It was written uh, at the height of the dot-com stuff. It, it's uh, it's a West Coast of the US. Uh, Sanders used to work for Yahoo, I think, when he wrote it. It's very West Coast. Uh, it, it, you know, it talks about hugging people and stuff, which, you know, in Britain you shouldn't do or you'll end up in jail. Um, or on, on, unless they want it, that is. Um, so it, it's kind of it's kind of very West Coast. But I've always said to people, if you do what that book says you should do and don't skip it, don't think, oh, well, I'll adapt it. Do what it tells you to do. It's kind of, for me, defines most of the incredibly successful people I've seen. Um, you know, if I think about what it is that they did, and it's about generosity, it's about reading, understanding, sharing. It's about building networks, building connection. And it's about just... I just love the word love. And I think we should just bring it back into the business lexicon um, much more than we have in the past. And I think there is nothing childish. There is nothing daft. It's so powerful. You know, I was saying to my kids, I used to have this badge on my on my leather jacket when I was a teenager that says peace, love and freedom. And I think what is so wrong about peace and love and freedom? It, it, there's something magical about about you know liberté égalité fraternité in France or whatever you know these are all words that business tend to shy away from and I think when when Tim wrote that love is the killer app I thought it was a um, an incredible title I thought the book was fantastic 
if and, I, and I'm saying this for the British people listening, it's West Coast, all right. So it's kind of like you know, <laughs> comes it, with it's a, not, a it's not your yeah your mm. British uh, way of of operating in the world, but it's a fantastic book, I think. I have never heard of it. I'm definitely well. There you go. Ah, oh, thank there you. you. I mean, I'm not even sure. I mean, whenever I see copy, I tend to buy them. So, so I'm hoping there's still copies left. <laughs> You've got them all. <laughs> but but I, I, I tend to have given most of them away. So, yeah. so um, Emmanuel, uh, I just want to say a massive thank you. I have loved catching up with you. It's been a fantastic uh, time, fantastic story. I've learned so much about you that I didn't know. So thank you. Thank you very much. No, thank you for, for the opportunity and thank you for what you do. Uh, I've been listening and and also there's some people that have come on your podcast that I know and and, and I know them a whole lot better now despite mm. them for years than, than I knew them before. So thank you for what you do. You're welcome. This podcast is brought to you by Liberare Consulting with editing provided by Hawkins Social. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not click on the subscribe button so you are the first to hear about new episodes. We look forward to welcoming you back soon.